My text this Lord's Day is taken again from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 36. But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and need so require, let him do what he will. He sinneth not, let them marry. As I begin this Lord's Day, I would like to make perfectly clear that no matter how biblical the principles and methods of preparing for marriage might be, it is neither principles nor methods that in and of themselves secure for us and our children a blessed Christian marriage. There are two errors in this regard that we must avoid. The first error. We must not view courtship in some magical way, treating it like a lucky rabbit's foot. This lucky charm notion of courtship is simply a pagan way of living the Christian life. It's as if to say, let's hang courtship around our necks. And so, ward off all of the evil spirits. But the second error that we must avoid is to consider courtship in a superstitious way, believing that merely establishing courtship in our homes will automatically guarantee success. You see, dear ones, this guaranteed success notion smacks of Roman Catholicism. Its view of the sacraments For example, in Rome, according to Rome, baptism automatically, immediately conveys the grace of God, cleanses immediately original sins by the mere application of the water to the individual. We ought not to view courtship in either of those two ways. Dear ones, a blessed marriage, listen closely, a blessed marriage is not a mathematical equation whereby we simply add one professing Christian plus another professing Christian and get a blessed Christian marriage. Any marriage Any Christian marriage that is blessed requires faith and trust. Not simply one time at the beginning of salvation, but on a daily basis availing ourselves of God's mercy and grace, applying the means of grace which God has given to us in His Word. You see, that either of those two errors in applying that to courtship 
It's not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, if that's our view. It's rather trusting in an institution, albeit a biblical institution. It's trusting in the means. Again, you have to understand, courtship will not solve in and of itself all of the problems that one may face in marriage. These errors are trusting in people. And how prone we are, dear ones. Prior to marriage, it seems that marriage tends to sober us all up, but prior to marriage, to view the other person that we're courting as being the answer to all of our problems. That if we're simply married to that person... All of our problems are just going to go up in a mist and a vapor and pass away. Beloved, courtship is simply a biblical means to a biblical end. And without the Lord Jesus Christ working in us by His Spirit and pouring into our lives daily His grace and His mercy, courtship, engagement, and marriage themselves will not avail to bring about a blessed relationship, a glorious relationship, a foretaste of heaven to come. The Lord Jesus Christ must ever be, dear ones, He must ever be our only hope of eternal salvation. And He must ever be our only hope of a blessed courtship, engagement, and marriage. For to follow those two errors mentioned previously, is to place confidence in the arm of flesh rather than in the name of the Lord our God. You know, we can do this in other areas of our Christian life as well. We can be led into a cold formalism when we place our confidence and trust in the outward forms of religion, when we place our confidence and trust in the fact that we sing exclusively psalms without instruments. We become, in effect, dear ones, just like the Pharisees of old, when we are led into that kind of cold formalism. We can trust in the name Covenanter instead of the name Jew. We can trust in faithful forefathers like Calvin, Knox, Rutherford, and Rennick instead of of trusting in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We can trust in baptism instead of circumcision. We can trust in the Puritan Reformed Church instead of trusting in the temple. We can trust in the minister instead of the priesthood. We can trust, as I said, in our non-instrumental psalmody, in all the outward forms of approved worship, instead of doing like the Jews who trusted in the ceremonial law. All these outward biblical forms without Christ and His free grace are vain and worthless. So do we, because of that, throw out 
all of our forms, all of our outward forms, all of the means which God has given to us in his word? Absolutely not. Courtship and all outward forms ordained by God in Scripture are good, but they must be used lawfully. They must be used in utter dependence upon the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones, if our marriage, the marriage of our children, is to be a success, it will come about because we have availed ourselves of much prayer spending much time upon our knees, crying out to God that He would bless our marriage and the marriages of our children. Let us therefore, dear ones, not make courtship or any other outward form an idol in our lives. Let us always check ourselves to see that our faith and trust is firmly anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in the arm of flesh. Well, this Lord's Day, we continue to consider the matter of preparing for marriage. For if we would properly prepare our children or ourselves for marriage, we must note the following main points from our text in 1 Corinthians 7.36. First of all, the supervision of fathers. And second, the well-being of children. First point, the supervision of fathers. In 1 Corinthians 7.36 But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and then focusing upon these next few words, and need so require, let him do what he will. He sinneth not, let them marry. Let him do what he will. That phrase implies a certain God-given authority invested into parents and primarily into the head of the home, the father, the husband. The question, dear ones, of who provides the oversight in the lives of a couple who are interested in one another is one of the significant issues which separates biblical courtship from modern dating. Who provides the oversight? In dating, the couple themselves are expected to oversee their own actions while they are alone. They may be given a curfew. They may even be told where they may go and where they may not go. They may be instructed that, as to what they're to do and not to do. But ultimately, if they are unchaperoned, the couple themselves become responsible for their own behavior. And in many families where dating is permitted, parents who give curfews and speak with the couple about the behavior expected may yet be considered too strict or suspicious. Even when they go that far, it seems like the culture in which we live seems to say, you have no right to tell these children where they can go 
where they can't, what time they need to be home. Children have rights too. This is the kind of culture in which we live. So we ought not to think, if that's the case, even with those who permit dating, that they would receive those kinds of remarks. Those who would opt and believe that God would bless, based upon his word, courtship, how much more they will receive those kinds of remarks. And so, in dating, it is children supervised, or couple supervised, or peer supervised. However, in courtship, that is for children still living at home under their parents' roof, it is the father, together with the mother, who provide the loving oversight in the relationship prior to marriage. During courtship, the couple are not on their own, making all of their own decisions that concern themselves and by themselves. Nor are they solely responsible for supervising all of their own behavior. Rather, that is the responsibility primarily of the parents. And again, particularly the the father. Such a view of parent-supervised courtship, as I've already alluded to, runs directly counter to the popular practice, even amongst professing Christians. The general trend, if it is moving in any direction, amongst professing Christians and Christian professing Christian churches, is in the direction of allowing children to have more and more oversight in these areas. Listen to the following words of Josh McDowell, who is considered one of the leading authorities in evangelical churches on the matter of dating, from his book, How to Help Your Child Say No to Sexual Pressure, page 116. Mr. McDowell says, Let me emphasize that the standards for conduct we're talking about must be the child's own standards based on his or her own convictions not our standards based on our convictions and forced upon our children. You should certainly have input, but the final decision in most areas ought to be left with your child. Peer-supervised, children-supervised relationships. Well, we're not so much interested today what Josh McDowell thinks about this issue nor what Greg Price thinks about this issue. What we're interested to find out is what God, speaking by His Spirit and His Word, thinks about this issue. Beginning with verse 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul begins to address certain questions that relate to those who are unmarried. There we find these words, Now concerning virgins. The word virgins. You know, that term, virgin, as it refers to one who has remained pure from all unlawful physical intimacy prior to marriage, is scorned and ridiculed nearly everywhere today in the world. But young people, children, listen to me today. Remember that what the world highly esteems, the Lord abominates. The Lord Jesus said in Luke 16:15, "That which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God." We do not take our clue 
or our marching orders from the world, we take them from the Lord Jesus Christ in the Word. And I would say to you young people, your purity in body and mind is one of the most valuable gifts that you can give to your husband or your wife in marriage. That is why we as parents must set the example in this era by, by carefully screening what we and our children watch. Not simply what the children watch, but what we watch as well. What we as well as they read. What we as well as they listen to. And especially today with the internet, we are completely foolish if we do not think that the garbage that is on many of these internet websites is harmless. It is nothing less than pornography. And I encourage you who are on the internet on a regular basis, be ever so careful because those pictures flash up in your screen and a simple click can put you into a website that has this pornography in it. Do not, I beg you and urge you, in the name of the Lord, do not even make the first click. Stay away from it altogether. Do not step and place the first step in that direction. Avoid it altogether. <clears throat> How? Dear ones, the devil, the flesh, and the world conspire together to suggest to us one look will not send you spiraling into wanton immorality. One look is not going to bring total destruction. So the temptation comes. Well, remember, this was what the devil also implied in the temptation to Eve. Just one bite is not going to bring about your death. However, as we know, it not only brought about their death, but the death of all succeeding generations as well. One simple step in giving in to that temptation brought death. That won't necessarily happen in our situation with regard to various temptations. But, dear ones, we don't know that it might as well. We ought not to take that risk. It is sin against God to do so, but it could also influence our children for generations to come to take even that first step in that direction. It's the little foxes that spoil the vine that get in there and begin to cause all kinds of problems. How many people have gotten wrapped up into these types of sins simply by taking one step in the wrong direction? Guard yourselves. Let us never therefore be ashamed of the term virgin. Let us hold high the term virgin in spite of the world and all that the world would communicate. 
Paul's discourse, dear ones, concerning virgins, beginning with verse 25, focuses on the practical benefits that he sees in remaining single. Practical benefits, not apostolic or divine commandments. Practical benefits that he would observe. For example, he sees as a very practical benefit that one who is single does not have the concerns for wife, husband, or children in times of distress, calamity, or persecution in verse 26. That's one particular concern that a single person is free of. He also sees as a very practical benefit that one who is single can more fully devote his time, talents, and treasures to the extension of Christ's kingdom. And he states that in verses 32 and verse, verse 33. But in verses 36 through 38, the apostle makes it clear that a father who has an unmarried daughter at home may either give her in marriage or not give her in marriage. Let him do what he will. Paul says in verse 36. In verse 37, he says concerning this father, he hath power that is literally authority, lawful authority over his own will in this matter. And we find in verse 38 that he can give in marriage or he can not give in marriage. And so there is a lawful authority that God has placed with a father in the home. As we shall see, however, there are considerations that he must carefully weigh in making such a decision, whether to give or not to give his daughter or his son, for that matter, in marriage. It is by no means a unilateral, arbitrary decision he makes. Rather, the input of his wife and of his child are very carefully considered in all of these decisions. And in the case of a home where there is no father, in the case of a single mother, the responsibility falls upon her shoulders in making these important decisions. You know, when a father is asked at his daughter's wedding, who gives this woman to be married to this man? He is not going through some meaningless ritual. He is fulfilling his responsibility of loving oversight in indicating his consent and agreement to this marriage. When he says, I am the one who gives this woman to be married to this man, he indicates that he has, by God, been given the authority to make that decision. This loving oversight of the father together with his wife in regard to marriage is also taught from the very beginning in the creation account when Adam and Eve were united together in the Garden of Eden. 
From the very beginning, dear ones, the Lord demonstrated that fatherly oversight before marriage was his will. In that he, as the ideal father, as the heavenly father, brought Adam and Eve together, giving Eve away to Adam. When God created Adam and Eve, dear ones, he did not first allow them to date for a while and then leave the decision entirely up to them. Nor did he create several men and several women so that Adam and Eve could date around and decide who they wanted to marry. He exercised from the very beginning the oversight in creating one woman for one man. Courtship, dear ones, is to always have as its goal not having a good time. That's what the popular concept of dating is. Let's just have a good time with nothing else in view. Let's just have a good time. The goal of courtship, dear ones, is marriage. It is intended to find a partner. That is the whole direction of this. It is not to get into as many relationships as one can possibly get into and break them up, preparing one not for a secure, long-lasting marriage till death do us part, but rather preparing one for breaking off a marriage relationship simply because the, the feelings are no longer there as they once were. Obviously then, dear ones, no courtship should be formed or entered into without first thoroughly examining the young man or the young woman as to there being a suitable husband or wife for your child. And in all of the areas, you ought to cover spiritual areas, growth in Christ, doctrine, worship, government. You ought to cover practical areas of how they live their Christian life. You ought to look at their work habits, their submission to their parents. All of these areas are so important. You ought to have some testimonial from other people who know them. These are the, this is the kind of care that we should take, dear ones, in preparing our children for marriage. That's the kind of loving oversight that we should exercise on behalf of our children, not because we're trying to make life hard for them, not because we hate them and despise them, but because we love them and because we would protect them from all the things that they may encounter if we simply leave that up to themselves. And so we see from the very beginning the principles of fatherly oversight being established in the Garden of Eden we see in the example of Abraham in Genesis chapter 24, he didn't send Isaac out to find himself a wife. He sent his servant out as his proxy, as his ambassador, to find his son a wife. We see also in Exodus chapter 22, verses 16 and 17, you can look that passage up <clears throat> at some other time, but in that passage, it speaks of a young man and young woman 
who are not engaged, but who enter into a, a physical, intimate relationship prior to marriage, prior to betrothal. And the text goes on to say that in that particular case, even though there has been physical intimacy, the father himself has the authority to say, I will still not give this woman, my daughter, to this man. He has the right to do so, but he has also the right to say, even though that has occurred, it does not necessarily follow that they must marry. If he does not consider this man to be a suitable partner for his daughter, he is not obligated to do so. Well, it may be objected by some, cannot such authority on the part of the father be grossly abused? Well, of course, there is always though the potential for abuse of authority, whether in the home, whether in the church, or whether in the nation, where there is authority, it can always be potentially abused. But dear ones, the potential abuse of parental authority in this matter is no more warrant to avoid courtship than the potential abuse of parental authority in any other area of the home. If you want to totally abuse authority or to eliminate that as a possibility, then yes, strip a parent of all authority and simply make the child completely autonomous. Because authority can be abused. In fact, any good gift that God has given to us is potentially at risk of being abused, whether it be food or clothing, wine, money, or yes, authority. All good gifts that God has given to us may be abused by man. Is that a reason, therefore, not to eat because we can potentially abuse food? To starve ourselves to death? To not use money in any way because we could potentially abuse money? You see, dear ones, the answer to the potential for abuse in matters of courtship, engagement, and marriage is not to take the lawful exercise of a father out of his hands, but to instruct fathers in the lawful and loving use of leadership within the home so that they do not become tyrants with regard to their authority, but they use it for the glory of God and for the edification of their family members. I would simply point out to you, according to the Scripture, it's as much an abuse of authority to do nothing as it is to be overly harsh. A father can abuse his authority within the home by totally capitulating and surrendering it and allowing the children to do whatever they want to do. That is as much of an abuse of authority as to the opposite extreme. 
Again, another objection. Someone may object to this whole issue of the parental oversight, the fatherly authority that's invested in him by saying, Paul is not directing his words to fathers in the matter of all male-female relationships prior to marriage, but only in regard to the matter of marriage itself. Well, although it may be true that the Apostle does not specifically mention the word courtship in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 36-38, nevertheless, I believe we ought to infer the, the, the Father's loving supervision and courtship by good and necessary deduction. For if the Father, according to the Apostle Paul, has responsibility either to agree or to disagree with the proposed marriage of a son or daughter, which is the most significant male-female relationship that a son or daughter could enter into, how much more he has the responsibility to exercise loving oversight in all lesser male-female relationships which lead up to marriage. That's simply a way of arguing if the greater, then the lesser. Well, does this loving supervision on the part of parents and particularly on the part of fathers apply to sons as well as to daughters? Well, according to the Word of God, yes, it does. Though not specifically stated within this verse or this chapter that we have just looked at and are looking at today. Nevertheless, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 6, we note these words of the Lord through his, through his prophet. Jeremiah 29.6 This is in the context of God speaking to His people who were to be carried away into Babylonian captivity. How they were to carry on in Babylon in a normal way. They were not to try to overthrow the Babylonian government because this was a discipline that God had brought upon them. Therefore, he gives them this instruction in verse 6. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there and not diminished. And so, God says to fathers, take wives for your sons. It doesn't say send your sons out to get their own wives. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands. And so, the oversight of fathers applies equally with regard to sons and daughters. We see also that this is the case from the examples that we find in Scripture. For example, Abraham sought out a wife for his son Isaac. He didn't, as we've noted, send Isaac out to find his own wife. Manoah, Samson's father, sought out a wife for his son as well. 
we noted from the very beginning in creation, God brought Adam and Eve together. He didn't allow them to date for a while, to be uh, acquainted with many uh, other females or males, and just to have a good time. No, the Lord supervised that whole situation. Uh, Another question arises with regard to this whole matter of parental oversight. Does this loving oversight apply to adult children who are no longer under the direct oversight of their parents? Well, let me be careful in how how I respond, but I would begin by saying yes, but not to the same degree. Not in the same way. You see, dear ones, even adults, And we all know this if we're honest with ourselves. Even adults need oversight and accountability in these matters. It is indeed a grave mistake for any of us to think we are beyond being tempted to fall into immorality. Whether we're a young person or whether we are 20, 30, 40, 50 or 60 years of age. We need accountability and oversight in that area of our life. How many adults have fallen, just like the young people, because they did not take the need for supervision seriously? Even adult children should desire and seek the blessing of their parents in matters related to marriage. Both Isaac and Samson appear to have been adults, and yet they allowed their fathers to be involved in this whole matter, went to their fathers, submitted to their fathers in these areas. But how can direct oversight be managed when the adult children no longer live at home or when they are separated by many miles in another city? Well, we would simply say adult children should desire and seek out and parents perhaps can even help in this matter. But they should themselves, the children, seek out faithful Christian couples in their church to open up their homes to them And when they want to go out, if they are courting, when they want to go out to do some kind of activity that evening, that they always invite another mature couple to accompany them. They do not go out by themselves. See, they are taking responsibility. They're being responsible and mature by taking those steps. I would simply add, dear ones, whether adult or child, anyone insisting upon privacy with no chaperone has more up his or her sleeve than simply talking. You can count it. That's not the primary issue that they're interested in in privacy. There are, you, can, you can enjoy a wonderful conversation about the kinds of things that that a couple who are courting should be talking about in the company of others. 
absolute privacy is not required or necessary. And so I would say, yes, adult children should seek out the approval of their relationships from their parents. I think that that is recognizing and honoring parents, even if they have left home. It's wanting their blessing upon this relationship. That's the way it should be. Before considering the final main point from our text this Lord's Day, I would like to demonstrate that the principle of fatherly oversight in all matters related to male-female relationships is not merely cultural. It's not simply a mere ancient Jewish custom, but was rather the view of our forefathers in the faith as well. The second Helvetic Confession states, Let marriages be made with consent of the parents, or such as be instead of parents. The parents are no longer living. Let there be those who are guardians or sponsors who approve and give consent to the marriage. The Confession of Württemberg teaches the following. Also, we teach that those which be young ought not to marry without the authority of their parents, and that the marriage which is contracted by a rash and unlawful consent of young parties without the authority of them in whose power they are is not to be counted as ratified. Thirdly, the Directory for the Public Worship of God emitted by the Westminster Assembly gives the following directions. Before that publication of such, this is talking about the publication of the marriage bans, uh, that there has actually been a betrothal, a contract that's announced publicly. Before that publication of such, their purpose to marry, if the parties be underage, the consent of the parents or others under whose power they are, in case the parents be dead, is to be made known to the church officers of that congregation, to be recorded. The like is to be observed in the proceedings of all others, although of age, whose parents are living for their first marriage. And in after marriages of either of those parties, they shall be exhorted not to contract marriage without first acquainting their parents with it, if with conveniency it may be done, endeavoring to obtain their consent. And finally, in this regard, note the words of the learned Francis Turretin, the Reformed Minister of Geneva, when he says, The Orthodox, that is the faithful church, maintain that the consent of parents in the marriages of children is not only of honesty, but also of necessity, so that without it the marriages are not legitimate and may also be broken. The second point, moving from the supervision of parents, let us consider the well-being of children. 
This is a much shorter point. But I want you to focus in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 36, upon these words. And need so require. Let me read in context. But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and need so require, let him do what he will. He sinneth not, let them marry. The Apostle Paul in verse 36 speaks directly to the fathers who are endowed with the lawful authority to either give or not to give their children in marriage. And he makes it very clear that such decisions should always be made with a view to the well-being and good of their children. It is a tyrant and not a caring, loving father that unilaterally makes such decisions without gathering the input of mother and of child. He is not looking out for the godly interests of its of his own child. But how do the words of Paul in verse 36, when he says, and need so require, how do those words teach that a father's decision ought to take into account the well-being of his daughter or his son? What do those words mean? Well, in the previous verses, Paul has given the practical benefits, as we've already mentioned, the practical benefits of not giving children in marriage. Namely, because of the present distress in the world and the cares of this life, which will take them away from their service of Christ to devote to their family. But now in verse 36, he states that if a father, in taking into consideration the age, and speaks here of, the, of this virgin passing the flower of her age, passing this, this prime period of, of meritable uh, uh, state, when she's most ready to be married at that particular age, that's what's a, that's a reference to, he says he, that the father ought to take into account the age of his daughter and the need of his daughter. The need of his daughter. What is the need that is here referred to that requires her to be married? Well, the need is simply that she does not have the gift of celibacy spoken of by Paul earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. She doesn't possess this gift to remain unmarried. And so for a father to require a child to remain single when all other moral considerations are met in her life and in the life of a, of a potential suitor, when all, all those considerations are met, it is, in effect, to deny marriage or prohibit her from marrying is to as much lead that child into temptation as when a father exercises no supervision at all. In either case, a father is sitting on a bomb that is just waiting to explode. As I mentioned last Lord's Day, parents should neither require a child to court who is not interested in marriage 
nor forbid a child from courting or unnecessarily delay a courtship or marriage of a child who is ready to be married. As long as the moral qualifications for a courtship or marriage have been duly met to the satisfaction of the father. Now, this certainly implies that a father should always seek his child's consent in courtship, engagement, marriage. In fact, Rebecca was asked in Genesis 24:58, "Wilt thou go with this man?" In fact, an engagement or marriage cannot be lawful without each party's consent. That's why we hear the words in a marriage ceremony, I do. That is their consent. Thus, the power a father has in regard to whom his child will court is threefold. What is his authority and power in regard to his child in the matter of courtship? First, he may forbid a courtship due either to ignorance or scandal in the life of either one or the other or in the lives of both. If they simply are ignorant of what is involved, grossly ignorant, or if they have scandals in their doctrine or in their life, he may forbid the courtship. Second, aspect of his authority. He may counsel a delay of courtship until the needed growth is evident in the life of one or the life of the other or in the lives of both. Or thirdly, he may agree to the courtship after carefully gathering information from father or from mother, from child, and from the potential suitor or suitee. That's a word. Evaluating that information that he has gathered and praying for God's direction in their lives. Paul also states here in 1 Corinthians 7.36 that the present distresses that he referred to earlier, that he thought was wise, therefore not to marry. He says the present distresses here that the Corinthians face did not necessarily outweigh the need of the child. Let them marry. It is not sinned. As it concerns, dear ones, how fathers should consider the well-being of their children in these matters, I would have you consider the words of a couple of the learned and godly teachers of the church from the past on this text. Calvin, from his commentary on this text, says this, The Apostle, too, in requiring exemption from necessity intimated that the deliberations of parents ought to be regulated with a view to the advantage of their children. Let us bear in mind, therefore, that this limitation is the proper rule, that children allow themselves to be governed by their parents, and that they, that is the parents, on the other hand, do not drag their children by force to what is against their inclination and that they have no other object in view in the exercise of their authority than the advantage of their children, the well-being of their children. And then Matthew Henry in his commentary on this text says, Parents 
should consult their children's inclinations, both to marriage in general and to the person in particular, and not reckon that they have uncontrollable power to do with them and dictate to them as they please. If parents have in view, dear ones, their child's well-being, they will also emphasize to their child that as important as it is to find the right spouse, it is just as important, if not more important, that they become the right spouse. That they focus all of their efforts and attention in becoming a godly young lady a godly young man. So when they meet that godly young man or young lady, that godly young man or young lady will say, that's, that's the one I want. That's the one that I want to have as my husband or wife because of the godliness within and exhibited in the life that's lived. And so, children... Even now, you, each one, ought to be focusing your attention upon growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You ought to be focusing your attention right now in learning godly submission and fulfilling the duties that God has presently given to you while you are yet under the roof of your parents. For if a child cannot submit to his parents' authority in the home, he or she will not know. I should begin with the, with, the, with the young man. He will not know how to exercise it in his own home if he has not grown accustomed to submitting to it in his parents' home. And she will not understand how to cheerfully submit to the loving leadership and, dis, and, the, and the authority of her husband within the home if she has not learned to submit under her parents' roof. This is where how we live within our parents' home is so absolutely vital to becoming the right person. And dear ones, it is definitely in the child's best interest, just a closing note, not to allow any outward affection during courtship to occur. It is in your best interest, children, to not, during courtship, hold hands, embrace, kiss, or use any other expressions of a covenantal union in word or deed because a covenantal union in courtship has not yet occurred. It occurs when you become engaged but not prior. And so physical affection should be totally avoided during this period. You know, if there was all that I said so far today I'm closing on this particular note. If all that I said prior today was not in the Scripture, but what we had was simply the example 
with regard to our relationship to Jesus Christ to go by, we would have more than enough testimony and evidence. For in our relationship, dear ones, with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, through His faithful ministers and the preaching of the Gospel, woos us to Himself. As we sit and we hear the Lord Jesus speaking to us in the offers, the free offer of the Gospel, come to Me. Come to Me. The Lord is courting His people. Then, as we consider the next step, when the Holy Spirit regenerates and causes us to be born again, gives to us faith by His grace to trust in Jesus Christ, and we know that the covenant of grace is extended to us in Christ, and we consent by believing, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, that covenant union is made. And this is all brought about through the loving oversight of the Father who extends to us the call to come to His Son. The Apostle Paul speaks of this relationship as being a betrothal at this point in our Christian life. We have been betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that final day, the time of the resurrection, we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, we see in the spiritual realm how the physical realm mirrors what God has established. And how, dear ones, we ought to praise God for the loving oversight of the Father in that relationship and how we must not disregard how we must not despise therefore children the loving oversight of your parents in this whole matter as well they love you they care for you enjoy the blessings which God gives as you submit to their lawful authority and blessing in this regard. Please stand with me in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank Thee that Thou hast called us unto Thy Son. Thou hast brought us into union with Him. Thou hast established the covenant, the covenant of grace, whereby we enjoy all of the blessings which the Lord has promised unto us as His bride. And Lord, we do praise Thee that Thou hast not merely left all of these things up to ourselves, Yes, we, by faith, by the regenerating work of the Lord, of the Holy Spirit in our, in our lives, we have been given the grace to consent. But it is of Thy will that this is the case. And Lord, we pray that Thou would protect and guard our children. 
that Thou would help them to discern the blessing and to view this loving oversight within the home not as a curse, but as a blessing. That Thou would surround our children, that Thou would give to them, Lord, Thy Spirit, so that they do not uh, either magically or superstitiously trust in courtship. But that, Father, they turn to Jesus Christ and avail themselves of His grace and mercy. We ask, Lord, that Thou would work in the lives of our children for generations to come. And Thou would bless them with godly marriages and give to them children so that we may see, while we yet dwell upon the earth, our children's children and peace on Israel. We ask these things in the blessed name of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.